Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else yet again? The latest on the Trump legal dramas. By the way, if for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing, indeed gushing, five-star reviews they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than... Andy McCarthy. Rich, how are you? Good, Andy. How are you? I'm good. I have good news for people who followed my football picks last week. Uh, there's only four games this week. <laughs> so so it's impossible for me to get five wrong out of uh, out of six again. So Yeah, um, well, this is the, this is the reason I, I never do any picks because I, I know I'll always be embarrassed. But I, I would have been tempted to go to my betting app and take all your, your picks, Andy, but I didn't do, I didn't get around to it. So my, my wallet's a little heavier for it. Yeah. Good advice uh, to take for yourself. All right. So, but I would bet on any of your legal predictions, Andy, which have uh, we have a much better record. So let's go to the Gene Carroll trial, Trump, you know, romps in Iowa. And then, then immediately this is the the next thing he does is show up at this latest trial, which is a, a defamation case, and and things got um, a little heated, a little heated in the uh, courtroom. What happened, Andy? It's a, it's a little testy. It's a little testy. So you have all these young pups together in the room. You know, we've got um, Gene Carroll, who's 80, Trump, who's 77, uh, Judge Cl- Kaplan, I think, is 77 or 78. Uh, he was appointed by Bill Clinton, who, by the way, is seventy-seven. Um, so, you know, as a boomer, boomer special. Yeah, as a boomer myself, I, I think it's time for all these guys to go away, and I think I'm entitled to to say that. But since they're all going to be with us, we have to pay attention to this circus for another week or so. So, this thing, the fact that it's in a second trial, Rich, is kind of convoluted, and there are two people to blame for a second trial. Uh, the first is Judge Kaplan, and Kaplan is a very smart guy, um, but he's very headstrong, which you now have two people who are very headstrong in the same courtroom. So it, it, the fact that that's not going well is not uh, you know, totally surprising. But just to lay out what this is about, because it's a little convoluted for people to to follow and some of it is out of order in terms of what's being tried versus you know when did these claims arise so it, just quickly the the story is if you remember um e jean carroll is putting out this book in 2019 and the book is about men that she finds horrible and she's got a chapter or so on trump in which she alleges that 30 years ago, um, 30 years ago now, uh, so in the mid-90s, but at a date and and time she can't identify, uh, she claims that Trump sexually assaulted her in a fitting room at Bergdorf Goodman, which is one of these uh, upscale places in midtown Manhattan. Um, I've been there many a time, unfortunately. It yeah, used to be I, I, I lived in New York, and uh, um, my, my wife was like, it, "It's Saturday, Rich. We're, we're going to you know this department store." And I was like, "The the last thing I wanted to be is walking on Fifth Avenue, you know, on, on a weekend." And uh, but anyway, I I did it. 
Well, I, I, I think I was there in connection one year with the St. Patty's Day Parade, but I have to oh, say yeah. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> <completely>. <laughs> um, so anyhow, uh, <clears throat> as soon as she says this, now Trump is president, of course, in 2019. So Trump basically blasts her uh, in three public statements within about uh, six days in, if I'm remembering the, this right, either April or June of 2019. And, you know, he basically says the story's ridiculous. I don't know her. I've never met her. I don't know who this woman is. Uh, she's writing a book. She's trying to make money. That's what this is all about. One reporter whom he makes the statement to, because he, he does one of these rants at a, a press conference, points out to him that there is a, a black and white photograph from the 1980s of the two of them together with their then spouses. Um, and he just basically poo-poos that and says, you know, look, we're in a, we're in a, I have my coat on and we're in a line and you're telling me that's, that means I know her, you know, get out of here. You're crazy. And in the meantime, amusingly rich, when later on in this proceeding, when he took a deposition, uh, they showed him the photograph and asked him if he recognized the people in it. And he point when they pointed Eugene Carroll to him and said, "Who's that?" Uh, he said, "Is that Marla?" <laughs> he thought it was Marla it's Maples, his uh, <laughs> uh, his former wife, his second wife. Um, so anyway, that's what we're uh, that's the 2019 claim. And then the important thing that happens at, at this point is um well it's it's twofold really one is gene carroll sues trump in 2019 for defamation on the basis of these 2019 statements and she sues him in new york state court but the justice department and the trump administration move it to federal court which is why judge kaplan has the case in the Southern District of New York, Manhattan Federal Court. Um, and the reason they're able to move it, in fe it to federal court is they are claiming that Trump has, as president, immunity for the statements that he made, that this is within the broad ambit of presidential power, um, where it's expected that when there are allegations like this, a president has to respond to them because otherwise it affects how the government functions uh, etc. And it turns out to be a very complicated area of the law. And we've been talking about immunity in, in other contexts the last few weeks. Um, this question of what is an official duty of the president, what is in the president's job description, uh, and what isn't is very fraught. And there's even an issue about whether in certain certain circumstances it's appropriate for the for the judiciary, a peer branch of government, to be defining what's in the president's job description. So as a result of the naughtiness of this question, the appeals courts, uh, this claim that that uh, she makes gets tied up on appeal. Judge Kaplan rejects it. He said that her statement or Trump's statements about her in 2019 do not fall into the ambit of presidential duties. He rejected it. But then the case goes up to the Second Circuit and it gets lost for a couple of years between the Second Circuit and they bounce it to a court in Washington that usually handles federal employment issues to determine 
is it or isn't it in his job description. So that's all tied up on appeal. In the meantime, Trump leaves office and two important things happen. One, Trump being Trump, he repeats the the rhetoric against E. Jean Carroll in 2022. But now he's not president anymore. So there's not even a plausible, arguable claim that he has immunity. Um, So she sues him again for that. So that's the 2022 defamation claim, distinct from the 2019 defamation claim. The other important thing that happens is New York in the uh, height of the Me Too uh, frenzy changes its law and allows a one-year window of opportunity for uh, people who claim they're sexual assault victims to sue. So she takes advantage of that and files a, a another legal claim that he sexually assaulted her. So now we have the 2019 claim, the 2022 claim, those are both defamation, and the sexual assault claim, which she's now able to bring because of this window that New York opened up. Here is where, Rich, I think Judge Kaplan makes a big mistake. He was very – he runs a tight ship. He's got, he's got a well-earned reputation for moving through cases um, pretty efficiently. And he set a trial date for April of 2023, which, by the way, is pretty fast to get a, a civil – the federal civil case to trial, although I wouldn't say it's unprecedentedly fast because Kaplan does do a good job of moving through his docket. And even though there's a lot of claim out there that, you know, this case is backed by activist Democrats and Judge Kaplan is a Clinton appointee. He was put on the bench in 1994. He's now got senior uh, status. you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of claim that th- this could all have been political timing. You know, knowing Kaplan, it's in, it's entirely possible that he was trying to get this case done in in 2023, so that it wouldn't be in the you know the 2024 campaign timeframe. But whatever his calculations were, he insisted that they go to trial on the 2022 defamation and the sexual assault claim even though the Court of Appeals hadn't resolved the 2019 claim. And that was done over Trump's objection, and I think it was rash to to do it, but the judge decided we're going to trial. Um, And maybe he figured that once they had a verdict on these, that would obviate the need to have a trial later on. I don't know what what his calculations were, but whatever they were, they were wrong. Uh, So in the... Gene Carroll case last April, which we covered pretty extensively at the time, the jury finds Trump liable for both sexual assault and the 2022 uh, defamation claim. And then Trump being Trump, uh, as soon as the trial is over, he goes to Truth Social and then goes on CNN and basically says the same things all over again about Gene Carroll, who then promptly files yet another defamation suit against Trump. So now we have the 2023 defamation claim, right? So to to make a long, long story as short as I can, we have resolved the 2022 defamation claim and the sexual assault claim. What's still on the table now, and this is what the trial currently taking place is about, 
is the 2019 and 2023 defamation claims. Now we get to the part where this case becomes like Arthur Engeron's Alice in Wonderland uh, fraud case with Trump. Because prior to trial, Judge Kaplan rules that because the issues of defamation and sexual assault have been fully litigated in the first trial, he's not going to allow Trump to claim in this trial that he didn't do the sexual assault or that he didn't defame her. Yeah, what, what, so we yet how does Trump get the luck to just be be guilty prior to trials all the time? <laughs> <laughs> it's just I mean it's unbelievable. And the other thing is he would like people to discount that the first trial ever happened because he didn't show up for it. In the meantime, like Kaplan asked him eight days to Sunday to show up for the trial mm-hmm. and come and testify. And actually, you know, people poked fun at him like he's running off at the mouth on a golf course in Scotland, but he won't like Mm-hmm. You know, make his way in front of the jury, take the oath and, and look him in the eye and tell him the story. So, of course, he gets convicted because in a civil case, if you don't show up, you don't participate, you don't offer a defense and you don't testify. The jury is allowed, unlike in a criminal case, to infer that you must be guilty. Otherwise, you would give them the innocent explanation. Right. So he goes down in flames, which is what happens when people don't contest uh, civil cases. And now what the judge is saying is there's a doctrine of law that's called collateral estoppel or issue preclusion. And what it holds is that if the same issue has been litigated once before by the same two parties, they don't get to litigate it again. The, se- the party that lost is stuck with the, with the finding. Now, I think this is unfair to Trump in this situation because, first of all, These are separate defamation claims, even if they're factually intertwined. If 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 I were indicted, say, for selling cocaine on the same day from the same pouch three different times, and for some reason the court severed one of the counts so I could only go on trial for two of them and I got convicted, I would still be allowed to go to trial on the third one and I'd be able to litigate whether I was was guilty or not. I wouldn't, you know, the court wouldn't get to say, uh, you know, we've already covered that, uh, which is essentially what what Kaplan is doing here. The other things I would if, point if out is out, if the, the government gave you a sweetheart deal on on all three uh, counts, then you'd be a president's son. <laughs> That's right. I don't have that kind of I don't have that kind of luck. Um, <laughs> but um I think here, a couple of things, Rich, you know, number one, um, the reason there's a second trial here now let's put the 2023 thing aside, because I think you could say, you know, if Trump was going to run off at the mouth anyway, after the trial, we were always going to have a second trial. I mean, that's just the way it was. But in this instance, especially with respect to the 2019 claim, the reason that wasn't in the first trial is because of Kaplan. It wasn't because of Trump. Trump wanted now. It may be true that what Trump really wanted was delay. He wasn't pushing on the merits, uh, but the fact is that it was the judge who decided not to try that that case. And now, after not letting, after rejecting Trump's attempt to have it all tried in one case, now he's telling Trump he can't defend himself because what the only issue in this case is supposed to be damages. But Trump's main defense against the damages is that it didn't happen. So he's really in a in a tough spot trying to argue that. And of course, just to jump ahead, 
to what you uh, to what we originally started talking about, which is the hijinks that are going on in the courtroom. That's the main reason for them. Um, you know, Trump is in there stage whispering. First of all, he's glaring at um, at Jean Carroll, saying, "By the way, that th- this seeing her in court the other day is the first time they've ever been in the same room together, as far as he's concerned. Like he's never never seen her before, right?" Um, but while she's testifying, he's stage whispering to his lawyers, and this may not be within the earshot of the judge, but it's within within the earshot of the jury. <laughs> so he's saying all the things that he's on trial for defamation for. He's saying, "Ah, oh, this is a con job. This never happened. It's ridiculous." Um, so Kaplan has now told him that you know a, a litigant has a right to be at a civil trial. Even a, this would be the same in a criminal trial, but you don't have a right to disrupt it. And he keeps saying, it, Kaplan knows the game that's being played here, right? So he keeps saying to Trump, I really wouldn't like to order you to be removed from the courtroom. But on the other hand, I know that's exactly what you would like me to do. Because Kaplan <laughs> understands that what he's involved in here is a political exercise that's connected to the campaign. Uh, on the other hand, I think... You know, Kaplan's being really churlish here, too, because Trump actually has shown up and he is participating in the case, participating too much If at this point, I would I would say the way he's carrying on. But, you know, he is a former president of the United States and Melania Trump is a former first lady of the United States. And that ought to mean something to the judge, even if, you know, he thinks that Trump is a clown show. And the reason I say that is Melania's mother died. Last week. So Trump first asked for the trial to be put off for a week so he could go to the funeral on Thursday. And then Kaplan basically said, don't give me that crap. You're you're scheduling campaign appearances in New Hampshire. So don't tell me you can't come to the trial. And by the way, you didn't come the first time. So, you know, I'm not going to make my schedule around you. So Trump trims his sails. First of all, he shows up for the trial, and he's been there pretty much through uh, through most of it. He was there through jury selection. He's there through Gene Carroll's testimony. So he trims his request, and he asks, I would like the trial to be adjourned for one day, just today, today, Thursday, because today in Florida is the funeral for Melania's mother. And Kaplan denied it. And I'm like, what on earth are you denying that for? I mean, you just I just think he's playing completely into Trump's hands as far as the um, uh, as as far as the public relations game is concerned. I think, you know, um, most people are not following this so closely that they know all the things that Trump has done to frustrate and undermine the proceedings in front of Judge Kaplan. I think most people, what they hear is, the guy asked to go to his wife's mother's funeral and his wife, no matter what you think of Trump, Melania was pretty popular and, you know, the country likes her and it's a reasonable request to go to the funeral. So what are you doing? Um, but anyway, so Kaplan uh, is continuing the trial today without Trump, even though he requested to be there. Uh, and he has said he's trying to put the pedal to the metal and get the trial done. Um, and he has said that Trump can testify on Monday, uh, even if all of the other evidence in the case is closed. And in the meantime, wh- when's New Hampshire, Rich? Is it Tuesday? Tuesday. It's Tuesday. So that'll be a, that'll be a fine roll into the, <laughs> into the primary. 
All right, so let's um, hit some other stuff. Maine was one of the uh, was uh, j- joined Colorado in infamy by knocking Trump off the ballot, and now you have the Supreme Court of Maine basically saying, "No, actually, we're not going to do that. We're just going to wait for the Supreme Court." That's right. They, what they've said, Rich, is that for now, uh, former President Trump can remain on the ballot uh, unless and until the Supreme Court rules that he should be off the ballot. So they have basically they know that this case is uh, coming fast and furious on the in the Supreme Court. Uh, oral argument, by the way, I think by the way, uh, uh, Trump's brief is due today in the Supreme Court. Uh, the other side's is due next week. the ar- The oral argument in this case is going to be in three weeks. Uh, I think February eighth. So the with with things rolling along and with it seeming obvious that. The Supreme Court understands the gravity of this and is moving to try to resolve it quickly. I think the main court appropriately deferred. Mm-hmm. And then we have some Jack Smith action with the conservatives on the D.C. circuit smacking him for this Twitter uh, d- discovery. What? What? Uh, I didn't follow this one at all. What's this one about? Yeah. So this is really uh, extraordinary and interestingly, the the, the four Republican appointees. Three appointed by uh, former President Trump, one appointed by for, uh, by uh, uh, George W. Bush, Bush forty one, not George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush. So, uh, anyhow, these judges, in what I think is an extraordinary statement, in connection with what I'll describe in a moment as a as a motion to, for rehearing on bonk, took pains not only to slap at Jack Smith, but also to take shots at their colleagues on the court and at the chief judge or the then chief judge who allowed this escapade to happen, Beryl Howell, uh, whom we've uh, talked about before. So let me just explain what they did. Uh, Basically, Rich, Jack Smith intentionally circumvented the Presidential Records Act because he did not want to allow Trump to assert his rights under the Presidential Records Act, which which include claiming executive privilege. The the, uh, gravamen of this case is Trump's Twitter account. There was no reason he ended, Jack Smith ended up getting Trump's Twitter account, which includes about 26, I think maybe 32 uh, personal private messages like on, on Twitter's email service. Um, All of that information was in the government's possession. There was no reason for any federal prosecutor to have to pressure or coerce a third, a private third party to produce it because it was already in the government's possession. During the Trump administration, the White House, as is is usual for for every White House, uh, as things were going along, let's, let's separate this out from Trump's purloining of stuff that should have been given to the National Archives. We're now talking about stuff that was given to the National Archives. So Trump's Twitter account went to the National Archives. Um, If Jack Smith had decided to request Trump's Twitter account for purposes of his investigation from the National Archives, two things would have happened that that, uh, Smith 
and the Biden administration obviously don't want to have happen. First of all, Trump is entitled under the Presidential Records Act to assert executive privilege with respect to communications and materials that were generated during his presidency. So this is not one of these things where we have to say, you know, hypothetically, did Trump have privilege as an ex-president? He's given these rights by statute under the Presidential Records Act. And Smith knew if he requested these documents, Trump would have asserted privilege. And the second thing that happens, and this is the thing they didn't want uh, to get into, obviously, uh, when the former president asserts privilege, the Presidential Records Act requires that the current president be consulted to determine whether he supports or opposes the former president's assertion of privilege, which means Biden would have been in the hot seat. And the Biden administration, the Biden Justice Department, the fiction under which they operate is that these prosecutions of Biden's main opponent in the 2024 campaign have nothing to do with Biden, nothing to do with the administration, nothing to do with the Justice Department, even though Jack Smith only can uh, can prosecute because he has he's a delegate of Joe Biden's power. Joe Biden is the only person in the executive branch who has power. And Jack Smith answers to the Justice Department. So if Smith had gone the Presidential Records Act route, it would have put Biden in the position of having to take a position in this prosecution. And they want to pretend that Biden doesn't have any uh, part in this prosecution. So what Jack Smith does is he runs into the then chief judge of the D.C. District Court, Beryl Howell, the Obama appointee who previously was basically uh, Pat Leahy, the Senator Pat Leahy, the very partisan Democrats' uh, main advisor on the Senate Judiciary yeah, Committee. I, I, and I love I'm, Beryl Howell. Say no more. He's, he's my favorite judge. I, I know Beryl Howell. Do you? Well, it's a she. Misgendered <laughs> <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> <laughs> big time. Well, you could, but this could be like you. You've probably <laughs> never seen. You've never seen Gene Carroll before either, right? That's what. Yeah. That's the next thing you're going to tell me. Beryl um, Howell sounds either like a, a good old boy or, I guess, a woman. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Forget I said. Uh, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so anyhow, so uh, Jack goes into uh, to Beryl and. You know, she's, by the way, now we've talked about her in a number of connections. She is rabidly uh, anti-Trump. She's, there's not a dumb bone in her body. She's a, you know, she's very smart. Um, but, you know, she wears on her sleeve the hostility to Trump and she reliably uh, rules against him. Doesn't necessarily mean her rulings are wrong, but I mean, uh, it, it's pretty, it's pretty clear where she's, where she's coming from, from some of the things that she's written. Um, and Let's face it, the Mueller investigation and the Justice Department's January 6th investigation, part of the reason they hang their hat or pitch their tent or however you want to put it in Washington, D.C., in Smith's case, he investigates in Washington, D.C., even when the alleged crime happens in Florida, like with the with the documents case, right? The reason they locate in Washington, D.C. is under the rule, the local rules of the court in Washington, D.C., all grand jury disputed issues go to the chief judge. So from 2016 until the, around the middle of last year, Beryl Howell was the chief judge. Uh, and when there were disputes, 
they would go into her and she would often rule, for example, that uh, lawyers associated with Trump or lawyers for Trump did not have attorney client privilege with their clients because the crime fraud exception applied, uh, you know, and various other rulings. She's she's consistently uh, gone against him. So anyway, what what Smith does on this occasion when he doesn't want to operate under the uh, Presidential Records Act is he decides to treat Trump like he's a regular criminal suspect who is not a former president and doesn't have any of that uh, constitutional dimension attached to the case. And he says to Hal, I want to get Twitter to produce Trump's account under the Stored Communications Act. And under that act, the prosecutor can get an order from a judge directing a service provider to produce these stored records, stored communications, and the prosecutor can get the judge to issue a non-disclosure order, which directs the service provider not to notify anyone, including the customer, uh, that they have provided these materials to the government. So Beryl Hal accommodates Smith uh, and orders Twitter to produce Trump's materials. Twitter objects. It, it advances various objections, but the main one is under the First Amendment. They, they basically say, what right do you have to tell us that we can't notify our customer that we've had to turn over uh, these materials? Um, so that, that issue gets litigated. Hal rejects their First Amendment claim. And in the meantime, they don't produce the materials fast enough as far as she's concerned. So when they produced to, to Smith three days be after the court deadline, all of Trump's Twitter account, she finds them $350,000 and holds them in contempt for missing the court's deadline. And this is all I want to repeat. This is all with respect to materials that are already in the government's possession and that Smith could have gotten by going through the Presidential Records Act without bother without bothering a uh, a third a private third party, but because he didn't want to let Trump litigate privilege, this is what he did. So, Twitter appeals, and the D.C. Circuit in a three judge panel that has two Biden judges and one Obama judge. I, I can't remember if it's two Biden and one Obama or two Obama and one Biden. Um, it, it, it was Pan, Childs, and Pillard. So it's um, uh, two Biden judges and one Obama judge. Uh, they issue a ruling saying this is all peachy. Uh, we agree with uh, with Judge Howell, uh, and they sign off on it. Uh, they basically uh, reject all of Twitter's arguments. So Twitter then moves for rehearing on Bonk, meaning for the whole uh, D.C. Circuit, which, as we discussed, I think last week, skews Democrat. There's seven Democratic appointed judges and four conservative, uh, four Republican appointed judges. So they deny rehearing on Bonk, which is pretty routine, as we said last week. It's very unusual. But what was unusual was Judge Rayo took the occasion, and she's joined by the other three Republican appointees on the court to blast what Jack Smith did and to criticize her colleagues for signing off on it. And what she basically says is the special counsel's approach obscured and bypassed any assertion of executive privilege. 
and dodge the careful balance uh, Congress struck in the Presidential Records Act. She goes on to say that they shouldn't have endorsed this, that there's precedent in the circuit that says, if we don't know what's in presidential files, our duty is to respect the need for confidentiality of the executive branch and allow them to litigate privilege if there's a privilege issue. That's That comes out of one of the Watergate cases from 1976. So Rao says, rather than establish, uh, rather than follow established precedent, for the first time in American history, a court has allowed access to presidential communications before any scrutiny of executive privilege. And she goes on to uh, you know, for for some length to describe what why executive privilege is important, um, why it's essential to the effective running of the executive branch, and again wondering why would a prosecutor, under circumstances where this information was in the possession of the government, why go after a third party who get, ends up getting held in contempt and charged three hundred and fifty thousand dollars when he could have simply gotten the materials from yeah, Nara. Uh, is this a symptom of his rush, or why would he? Why do you want to go down this route? It's. It, I think it's twofold. It's uh, in part he didn't want. It's his rush. He didn't want to allow Trump to litigate privilege. But I think very important to them is to maintain this fiction that Biden didn't have anything. The Biden doesn't have anything to do with the prosecution of Trump, mm-hmm. and if Trump asserted privilege, the Presidential Records Act requires that consultation be done with the sitting president to ask whether he supports or opposes the former president's assertion of executive privilege. So if if Smith had gone the PRA route, the Presidential Records Act, that would have put Biden in the hot seat and it would have made it very clear that he's in the middle of this prosecution, mm-hmm. which is taking place under his power. Yeah. All right, so let me do a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com, your ticket to all our content unobstructed by any annoying metered paywall. And if you sign up and log in, you see about 90% fewer ads, so a lot of the annoying, most distracting ads go away. And you can comment on articles and blog posts, and you get invitations to exclusive events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal all around. Please check it out. So Andy, you were on this from the very beginning, the in the contempt fight with Hunter Biden, House Republicans kind of messed up by doing the uh, subpoena and then having their uh, formal vote to open the inquiry. And now they've had to go back and issue a new subpoena. What's going on here? Yeah, this is really so um, infuriating. I mean, all of this is driven, I, I hate to beat a dead horse on this, but all of this is driven by the fact that these guys, on the one hand, they tell the country, this is the House Republicans, on the one hand, they tell the country, we're in a crisis and we may have to impeach the president, which is why we've had to authorize this impeachment inquiry. And at the same time they're doing that, they say, oh, and by the way, we're taking a month's vacation. I mean, which is it? Do we have a crisis or we don't have a crisis, right? So um, because they were flush up against their vacation deadline, which was, I think, December 14th, um, they couldn't get the timing right. So they had that they had their subpoenas, which were issued by the Judiciary and Oversight Committees to Hunter Biden. They had them returnable the same day that they finally voted 
for the impeachment inquiry, except they had Hunter come in in the morning and they didn't authorize the inquiry until the afternoon. So technically, Rich, that doesn't make the subpoenas invalid. They're still committee subpoenas. But it gave Hunter and his lawyer, Abby Lowell, who's a very seasoned, savvy Washington defense lawyer, uh, he gave they gave them ammunition to say that the subpoena the subpoenas that he had uh, been issued previously were invalid because they had they were issued prior to the full house authorizing the impeachment inquiry and the reason they're able to make that position with some force even though I think it's technically wrong is because they're simply echoing what these same Republicans and the Trump Justice Department said in 2019 during the Ukraine impeachment of Trump when Nancy Pelosi purported to authorize the investigation unilaterally without a vote. And that was the basis on which the Trump administration said that it wasn't going to cooperate with any of the information requests, even though those information requests too were issued by standing committees of Congress. So it's not a great argument, Legally, but it's a great argument politically because it's the same position these very guys took. Um, so what I said at the time was instead of um, you know moaning about how uh, Hunter had um, in a brazen way flouted their subpoenas, what they should do now that the impeachment inquiry was authorized is just issue them another subpoena. And give them a return date like the first or second week in January, whenever they were going to come back. And then when they came back, they could be on offense. You know, they'd be now, it would now be Wood Hunter show up for the, uh, for his deposition. Instead, they did nothing but, but squawk for four weeks about how Hunter had the temerity to, flout their subpoenas. And they said, oh man, when we get back there, we're going to hold them in contempt. So, of course, Abby Lowell writes this letter uh, last Friday saying, we don't think the subpoenas are valid because they were issued after the impeachment, before the impeachment inquiry was authorized. And he quotes all of all of the things they said back when. Um, Now, the thing to bear in mind here is, as we've discussed before, there are 18 Republicans in the House who are from districts that were won by Biden in 2020 and that have an uphill battle to keep their seats in the November election. They don't want to take a vote on holding Hunter Biden in contempt unless it's an absolutely clear shot that they can defend on the campaign trail. And even then, they're probably not crazy about the idea of doing it. But now on, on the basis of this letter from Abby Lowell, Lowell ends up saying in the letter, um, we don't think your prior subpoenas are valid, but if you issue a new subpoena, we'll comply with it. So now you have Hunter saying, if you issue me a subpoena, I'll come and I'll testify. These guys don't want to hold him in contempt when he's taking that position. So finally, the next day, which was, uh, I think it was Sunday, actually, uh, Jim Jordan and and Jamie Comer, the chairs of the... um, of the judiciary and the oversight committee write a letter back to uh, Lowell saying, you know, we think everything you said legally is wrong, but you know, on second thought, we're going to issue you a new subpoena. 
So I think they're still negotiating what the date is going to be, but they've decided to stand down on the contempt. And I mm-hmm. think the reason they're standing down on it is because they didn't have the votes to hold them in contempt. Yeah. So another Hunter story. Turns out they, they've finally gotten around to doing forensics on the Hunter Biden gun. I guess there was just a backlog you know, in the, the Delaware office and there was cocaine on the holster. You know, I kind of imagine uh, there, there's a restaurant uh, go to in New York occasionally that has salt encrusted halibut on the menu and the halibut <laughs> comes in this like caked in this white substance. And <laughs> 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 yeah, it must have looked like that. Oh man, this is just, you know, it's it's like one of these. Uh, I know this is an overused uh, example, but was it was it uh, was it Rumsfeld or was it uh, Kissinger who said that uh, about the Iran Iraq war? Like, can't they both lose? Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at this and you're like, you know, between wife and Hunter, can't they mm-hmm. both lose? So <laughs> you know, this is a disaster for Hunter. Hunter has the temerity to argue that this is a political prosecution against him. It's been brought because of political pressure by the Biden Justice Department. Um, and that if his name weren't Biden, uh, this case wouldn't have been brought. And the truth of the matter is, I mean, you talk about a backlog. Rich, this is a backlog since 2018. This is like mm-hmm. a, we're getting to, getting to be a six-year backlog. Um, if he his name weren't Biden, he would have been convicted on this like five years ago, right? So – it, it, what happened here is, I guess, Weiss got his backup because Abby was saying, you know, that he's a political hack and he gave in to pressure and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they decided to blast him with, with both barrels in their response. And one of the things they headlined with is, by the way, we've now done this forensic testing and we find in this case where Hunter lied about his drug use to obtain the gun that there's cocaine powder all over the holster that the gun was in that Hunter got rid of um, and that they, uh, they ultimately found, which by the way means like, who knows if they could even tie the, the cocaine to Hunter, right? Hunter's defensive <laughs> trial be like the other guys. It's the other guys. Co- My cocaine is different from that cocaine. It's yeah. not this co- Um But th- the question that burns as far as I'm concerned is how on earth are they just finding this out now? You know, just mm-hmm. so people understand, when you recover evidence, what happens is you seal it in a bag to maintain the integrity of the evidence. And you take some pains so that there's chain of custody so that you can show who handled it from the point where it was seized to the time it gets in the courtroom. So in a case like this, you would, in a prompt manner, the case agent on the case would unseal the evidence envelope. That, w- that it was placed in after being seized and get it to the lab at the FBI for whatever forensic testing was required. And you would usually uh, immediately do testing to make sure the gun was operable and to check things like, do, is there an obliterated serial number? Has it been manipulated in any way? So you do all that testing as standard in a gun case. But the other thing is, if you see, if you happen to be a federal investigator and you see that this guy who has a history of drug use and who was kicked out of the Navy for cocaine use, if you find that the holster that his gun was in is covered in a white powdery substance, <laughs> you get that to the lab and have it tested. Um, but they didn't do that. The gun sat there for five years. And I would just point out, Rich, 
that if it hadn't been for this judge, Norienka, um, this sweetheart deal would have gone through, right? And mm-hmm. one element of that was that they were just going to get rid of this gun case. Nobody mm-hmm. would ever have known this. This is, this means that Weiss approved a deferment, which in and of itself, the Justice Department does not defer on that charge. But Weiss approved a deferment under circumstances where nobody had examined the gun and that they didn't know that the gun was covered with cocaine. I mean, you can't even make this up. <laughs> All right, that's all the time we have for the special white powdery substance edition of the McCarthy Report. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shetty. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich.